Welcome to the College Commons Podcast and our acclaimed author series, brought to you by HUC Connect, together with the Jewish Book Council. We'll meet authors recognized by the National Jewish Book Awards and discuss their celebrated books. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to the College Commons Podcast and our episode with author Joshua Cohen. Joshua Cohen has published six novels, short fiction and nonfiction, to great acclaim. Called a major American writer by the New York Times, maybe America's greatest living writer by the Washington Post, and an extraordinary prose stylist by the New Yorker, Cohen was awarded Israel's 2013 Matanel Prize for Jewish Writers, and in 2017 was named one of Granta's best young American novelists. Our topic for discussion today. Cohen's novel, The Netanyahu's, won the 2021 National Jewish Book Award. Joshua Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on the College Commons podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with the story behind the story, such as has been reported about the book, The Netanyahu's. It seems that a real encounter regarding another real encounter is what inspired you. That is to say, you met the late, great Harold Bloom, and he shared with you his hosting of Benzion Netanyahu, the father of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and military hero, not to say martyr, uh, Jonathan Netanyahu. Tell us about what your time with Harold Bloom meant to you and what his account of Benzion Netanyahu inspired in you. It's very difficult to talk about Harold Bloom in the past tense. He, he, he was such a vital person, such a brilliant and, and seeking and curious uh, mind, it, it, uh, maybe as an example of that, is that, you know, into his 80s, he decided that he wanted to, you know, hang out with me. I, he was still reading younger people is what I'm trying to say. And he was reading them with all of the sympathy that he had read people whom, I, you know, I consider masters. And so that was enormously flattering. It was terrifying also, because because Harold was also could be a terrifying figure in his judgments, in his kind of feats of memory in his uh, uh, feats of association. Um, He was a a formidable mind. And um, one thing he liked about me um, was that I wasn't from uh, the university. Um, I wasn't from Yale, but I also just wasn't from the academic world. And I think he wanted to kind of speak to a, a, a working writer because he was considering uh, writing memoirs. Uh, he ended up writing a memoir uh, toward the end of his life, but it was a memoir of, of, of his interest in poetry and, uh, and his experience of poetry. Um, but he wanted to write a memoir in the, in, the, in the very kind of basic sense. I mean, though nothing Harold did was truly basic, but in the sense of this was my life, this is what happened to me. And in the course of it, you know, while he's recounting all of these stories with all of these um, famous names, Hanging out with with Derrida, uh, spending time with Paul Deman, spending time with with Gershom Sholem. Uh, in the middle of this, you know, CNN is on in the background, and uh, and BB comes up and he says, you know, oh, I met that guy, and I I said, huh, you know, and I was thinking, did you meet him? I don't know, in the '90s when BB was was the Israeli ambassador to the UN, you know, was this some like Upper West Side cocktail party or something? But he said, no, no, I, 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 you know, I met him when he was like, you know, 10 years old uh, when I hosted his father, uh, when I was asked as sort of the only Jew uh, in the faculty to bring uh, around this, this other Jew, this professor of, of medieval history. 
And I was interested in this. Harold, you know, told his version of the anecdote. Jean came into the room and contradicted him and gave her own version. They went back and forth. And I, I don't, I think that Harold, he didn't really understand why I was so interested in this. He said, you know, this was not the most important thing that ever happened to me. But I really saw in this, in this anecdote something allegorical. But I wasn't going to write it uh, because I figured it was, it was Harold's to write and it would make its way into a memoir. But then Harold died. And, uh, and there was no memoir. And so I felt free to, um, to put it out there. Moving on to Harold Bloom's inspiration for you, which you really quite movingly described. Tell us about Benzion Netanyahu's trigger for you. What, what, what was the valence of, of this figure in Harold Bloom's life that so captured your imagination? Well, I mean, I think for, for Harold, he was an annoying house guest. You know, at the time, the name Netanyahu it didn't mean anything. It was, it was, you know, at least for the people around Harold, you know, hard to spell. And so I think it maybe tickled him that these people who were so uh, annoying and rambunctious in his home, you know, became uh, annoying and rambunctious uh, on the world stage. But I don't think he investigated deeply into, into Benzio Netanyahu's work. And I think he was maybe offended to be asked to really act as a chaperone and, and to maybe judge the man's character. But the idea of being Harold in the English department, what would he know about medieval history? He wasn't really asked to, to give an opinion. And, and he didn't develop one, I don't think, about his work. I mean, I, uh, I spent a lot of time reading uh, Benzio Netanyahu, reading his Origins of the Inquisition in 15th century uh, Spain, which is his sort of uh, masterwork, which is an almost thousand page book um, with a sort of revisionist history of the of the Inquisitions, of the Iberian Inquisitions, the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisitions that essentially stated, and this is a very kind of limited, reduced Wikipedia version of it, but that these inquisitions, which were regnal inquisitions, meaning there were inquisitions led by a king or by a monarchy and not by a pope and not by the church, uh, that these uh, inquisitions were really responsible for defining Judaism as a race as opposed to a religion. The idea being that, you know, when someone converted to uh, Catholicism under duress, um, the, the idea was um, that wasn't enough. There was still uh, uh, the Jewishness inhered in the blood. And uh, and that was really an obsession of 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 Benzionetinos, and it allowed him to really connect then uh, uh, the Inquisitions to the race theories of Nazism, and provide a kind of cyclical history of Jewish persecution, oppression, and and death, really as a justificatory framework for um, for the existence of the state of Israel, um, which is a state that that largely rejected him. I mean, the, you know, the answer as to why Benzion Netanyahu was in the United States, what were the Netanyahu's doing in the United States is really the history of Benzion Netanyahu's involvement on the quote unquote wrong side. And again, everyone can debate, you know, that characterization of, of Israeli history. He was a revisionist with a big R. He was a, a, a sort of uh, uh, secretary to or, or, or involved uh, Jabotinsky and involved with um, quote unquote revisionist Zionism that believed Jews could not wait around for the great powers to grant them a state. They had to go and take it. And he was a kind of a rabble rousing um, uh, polemicist uh, and, and an editorial contributor to, to a lot of uh, revisionist newspapers in, in mandatory Palestine and essentially made himself persona non grata there because of his vociferous political views and because uh, he also helped to uh, stage a bombing at the university uh, where he was being educated. 
And that meant that once you, you commit an act of, of, of soft terror, let's say, against, uh, against your own university, you can't expect them to really hire you. And that really, um, that really caused him to go out on the road and to pass himself along on the American academic circuit. And um, he actually first got a job in the United States r representing the revisionist movement in, in, in the United States and kind of going around raising money for it. But after Jabotinsky's death, which happened soon after he arrived in the United States, he went and finished his PhD at Dropsy College via seminary and then taught at, at University of Denver for a while and then ended up at Cornell where he was a professor until, until 1976, until Yoni died in, 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 in Antebi at which point he moved back to, to Israel. In many ways, his return to Israel, though under, under these you know, horrific circumstances, these tragic circumstances, it was very much uh, the beginning of a period that might be classified almost in Freudian terms as a return of the repressed and, and a re-welcoming back of the, of the revisionist ideology into Israeli political life. But, but it, uh, certainly a, a, a victory was won by his son, who in many ways incarnated the revisionist ideology in his terms as, in his nearly 15 years as prime minister. You picked up on some of the allegorical approaches to understanding Benzion's career in relation to Zionism in Israel. Let's pull it back to Bloom's orientation as an American Jew here and follow one of the potential allegorical threads. The existence in diaspora, the Jewish existence in diaspora emerges as a major theme of your book, and it weaves across uh, the timeline, as you have just indicated. And indeed, many of our listeners know of the phenomenon of Moranos, one of the terms that is used to describe Jews forcibly converted during the Spanish persecutions of the 14th and 15th centuries. And most of our listeners will also uh, know of accounts over the course of history of conversos or Moranos attempts to retain or return to Judaism over the centuries in a kind of phenomenon that I call the Murano romance. <laughs> the real Netanyahu fiercely argued that this attempt at return is overstated or even false. It's, it's not just that he argued about the race component of the persecutions in the first place, as you uh, laid out for us, but he also argued that Jews had in significant measure been yearning to join majority society in some functional way, even though they were perversely both approached and avoided by the, the institutions of Spanish Catholicism. So Netanyahu represents uh, a very complicated Jewish understanding of being in the world elaborate on that in relation to the imagined encounter between Ben Zion Netanyahu and Harold Bloom. A lot of Ben Zion's work really revolves around this distinction between, you know, the, the, the Anusim and the, the Mishumadim, right? The idea of an Anusim being a, a legal category, right, of Jews who were forced to, 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 to convert, you know, like forced against their will at sword point or at that threat of torture. Whereas, you know, Mishumadim are people who are, you know, the word means, you know, self-destroyed, self-destructed, uh, people who um, voluntarily uh, leave. In fact, 
you know, um, in, in Benzino Netanyahu's uh, interpretation were relieved to become something else because of the opportunities that, that offered them uh, in business and education, in, in just, you know, not getting killed. And it was Benzino Netanyahu's answer was that, you know, these people who um, embraced this other identity were essentially denied it, you know, a few generations later by a church that says, "Uh oh, you know, stop right there. Watch out. We still consider you Jews. And the idea that you could never leave that distinction, right? You could you can call yourself something. You can go to church. You can you can take communion. You can do all of this, but you can never be something else. And in the book here, the Bloom figure, uh, who I don't call Harold Bloom, I call I, I, I call him Blum. He is someone who is someone of Harold's generation who uh, really believes in American exceptionalism, where Jews go from being a, you know, a chosen people uh, to being able to choose. And the idea that um, this freedom to choose, it, it's a third category. It's not, you know, you're, you're not being forced to uh, uh, Americanize, whatever that would be. Um, and, you know, nor is it you, you're put in such peril uh, in your identity that you are dying to Americanize, you know, in order to avoid, you know, oppression or, or, or being killed. It's that these two cultures can exist simultaneously. And not only that, but in, in many ways, uh, uh, reinforce one another. And this is the liberal answer that Blum in the book sort of deals with this idea that, you know, that, that one can have these double identities in ways that aren't hidden and, uh, and they're not in competition. And it's, it's Benzio Netanyahu who shows up in the book and basically says, you know, well, you're a fool. This might work for you. This might work for your children. But within a few generations, um, you too will be proven wrong. What makes you think that America is the historical exception to this cyclical history? And this throws the character of Ruben Blum into a crisis. Um, because there's the part of him that absolutely wants to resist this and, and does resist it and, and, and talks about the exceptionalism of democracy and of choice. And, um, and then there's a part of him that um, cannot deny a historical record and saying, you know, why do I have this hubris that um, this particular set of principles and civil liberties that seem often very tenuous and are certainly not evenly granted across you know, the entire identity spectrum, why do I think this is going to be any different? The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship, Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning, The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect. And now, back to our program. In the voice of Ruben Blum, he describes himself thus, quote, I came into the world with a skin 
that wasn't quite white. But as I grew up, it thickened, close quote. One could read this to mean that he developed a thick skin against the slings and arrows of outsiderhood. Or one could read it that his whiteness thickened. It became a, a larger part of his identity at a minimum outwardly, but certainly if we think of Harold Bloom, one could argue inwardly as well. Would you be willing to read this passage both ways for us in relation to either the real or the fictional Blum or Bloom? You know, I think I think the real Harold is a is a different story. I mean, I think Harold was enormously entertained by the fact that he grew up um, speaking Yiddish in the Bronx and becomes the Sterling Professor of Literature at Yale and an expert in English romantic poetry and Shakespeare. I mean, this to him is the divine joke of existence. And I think he reveled in it. And I think it was an animating principle of his life that that he could, in a sense, have been so good, whatever that means, good at at, at what he did, that um, that they had no choice but to accept him in his fullness. And he, he never tried to, quote unquote, pass. You know, it was impossible not to know that Harold Bloom was a Jew. I think that, you know, my fictionalization of Harold, you know, I, I couldn't write Harold because, you know, if I wrote Harold, people wouldn't believe it. And also he's such a large figure that he mm. would take over the book in many ways. I mean, Harold was a was a genius. And in many ways, it's difficult to write a genius because they are so otherworldly. I think that uh, uh, my character of, of Ruben Blum is, is, is a much more quotidian, you know, mundane figure. He's not a professor of literature. He's a professor of the history of taxation, mm-hmm. uh, especially, specifically American taxation. But when you talk about that passage, I mean, I think that that, yes, I, I, I can absolutely read it both ways. I think one way is saying uh, not not just that my whiteness thickened in the sense that I could, you know, pass as white and not just that, you know, I got tough enough that like, you know, that the, the so-called microaggressions and, and even the more macroaggressions, you know, I could brush them off easy. I think I read that passage actually as it was that I didn't just have to be as good as someone. I had to be better and I had to be so much better that I had to convince the people who didn't want me on the inside that they needed me or that they would be at a loss. And in order to become that person, you need to be uh, a thick of skin. Certainly Harold needed to be uh, Cornell and later Yale. And then I think you you also need to be thick of skin in the sense of you, you your whiteness needs to thicken because you need to have the temerity to speak about you know Shelley and Byron in, in Harold's case and and in this case uh, case of Ruben Blum of you know the the history of taxation's relationship with slavery uh, and with the Native American resettlements of Andrew Jackson uh, with authority as if you were there uh, or as if you were uh, truly heir to that tradition. That's what I was thinking about kind of beneath all of those double meanings of being able to, to, to kind of uh, both pass and and shrug off. So let's follow up on this idea that you just described. It, in one scene, Blum and Netanyahu discuss classic Western TV shows, mm-hmm. evoking notions of native versus settler, hero versus villain. What does this exchange around the American classic Western TV show. What does it mean? What does it evoke for the American Jew and the Israeli Jew in your novel? Well, I mean, this book is set 1959, 1960 in that winter. And I 
was thinking about what was on TV then and these Westerns where, you know, the, the red men were threatening and the white men go out to protect the virtue of the women who are homesteading the quote unquote unsettled West. And while I'm thinking about this, I'm reading through a lot of Benzio Netanyahu's articles. I think I quoted in the book, uh, I believe he wrote it for Hayarden, which is one of the, the revisionist periodicals, newspapers that he was an editor of and, and a writer for. And he makes an explicit comparison. He said, you know, if I think he calls them the Anglo-Saxons, right? If the Anglo-Saxons had not essentially exterminated a lot of the Native American population and the ones that they didn't exterminate, right, uh, uh, move them out of the coastal population centers and, and, and essentially ghettoize them, that America would never have been founded and achieved the success that, that, that America had. It's a truth, right? You have to conquer a land and destroy people in order to, you know, make it in the image that you want, right? I mean, this is what happened. This is our, this is the founding of the United States. And, but he's using it as a positive example for what Jewish settlers in, in, in Palestine, how, how they need to treat what we call the Arabs, not yet the Palestinians, right? And, uh, and he's saying that this is a positive example. And so in my mind, if Benzio Netanyahu is, is, is having this idea, at this time, and then you know the the airwaves. Once he gets to the United States, are full of rawhide and these TV shows of of manifest destiny. In a way, it was a window into a man who was thinking um, about American politics or thinking politically in an American spirit before uh, he really ever lived here for a long time. And that to me was fascinating. What do you make of the fact that the allegory or the analogy to the story of the American conquest and removal of First Nations in the United States actually cuts across both sides of the Zionist narrative in that, on the one hand, the Zionist pioneers were that, they were pioneers coming from the outside and indeed conquering. But on the other hand, the foundational logic underlying that return was indeed a return in which they would be better analogized to the First Nations. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it did not escape, you know, Benzio Netanyahu for half a second that he was born in Warsaw and uh, he knew that history better than, than anyone. In fact, you know, one of the interesting ideas about uh, the radicalization of Benzio Netanyahu was that he came to Palestine at a fairly young age. His father, Nathan Milikovsky, was a sort of itinerant rabbi, fundraiser, kind of speaker, who kind of, you know, picked the family up from Poland, dropped him in Palestine, and then went around the world and, and was very much an absent father. And Benzio Netanyahu, you know, really grows up in a Palestinian context, right, in, in mandatory Palestine, and he begins studying, you know, European history. And right at the time where he's beginning to think, okay, maybe this is my discipline, maybe this is where my career lies, suddenly, the nascent Hebrew University is flooded with refugees from European universities who are among, you know, the greatest historians that Europe had. And so suddenly we would say in an American context, maybe he's competing with immigrants for jobs. And, and in a lot of ways, these immigrants being, you know, European educated, 
and speaking uh, multiple European languages are, you know, not just maybe prejudicially seen as better suited to the job, but but actually are better suited to the job. Mm-hmm. And um, and he develops, I think, this resentment. Um, so I think he he absolutely understood not just how these things cut across the Zionist narrative, but he also understood how it cut across his own career. And, you know, there was a part of him that said, you know, I should have been born in the land in Palestine. And there's another part of him that said, you know, I, I should have stayed longer in Europe. One thing to also really know about Benzio Netanyahu is probably the greatest fact about him is, is, is or, or the most salient fact to his personality is, you know, during the most consequential decade of, I would say, not just modern Jewish history, but, you know, being slightly crazy, I would say all Jewish history, which is the, the, the 19, you know, 40s and the 50s, Benzio Netanyahu is not being murdered in Europe nor is he founding and establishing the state of Israel. He's in Manhattan, uh, suburban Long Island, and then suburban Pennsylvania. And so this is a man seething with resentment that he is, in a sense, excluded from history. He's excluded by coincidence. He's excluded by his own actions and failure to kind of get on. And this breeds in him a true anger. So I think that he's very much attuned to how displacements play a role in not just building a politics, but building a character, which I would say in his mind would probably precede a politics. Do I hear you saying that both in his personality as a player in the stage of history and in his career and publications, Benzion Netanyahu effectively embodies and illustrates precisely the anxiety of influence and the need for having missed the boat that he has to then dislodge and revise and offer a counter story? Absolutely. Because, I mean, in, in, in many ways, I think that it's a weird sort of anxiety of influence. It's a weird sort of belatedness, which is Harold Bloom's word for feeling that one has been born too late or come too late because he experiences belatedness in relation to his peers. I mean, he's sitting there and all of the the labor Zionists who were his his enemies that he who he considered collaborators with the British and betrayers of the Jewish people. These are the people who are building the state. And he begins to understand the mistakes he's made and he immediately tries to dissociate from them because I believe it's it's too painful. I mean, this is at least is my reading of him when he begins writing his doctoral thesis on uh, Bravanel and he talks about the political role of, of viziers or, or court Jews in the medieval period, uh, in the medieval kingdoms, he is essentially talking about people whose loyalties are sort of split between a secular governance and their responsibilities to the Jewish people. And in a way, he's portraying the people who are the tax farmers for the nobility in the 15th century, who are trying to you know, convince Ferdinand and Isabella to, to not kick out all the Jews or only kick out some of them or only kick out certain Jews. And he's essentially comparing their predicament to labor Zionists, who he sees as collaborating with the British. And he's finding his peers suffering by comparison. And in a way, this is a complete revision of the past and a use of the past to create an argument in in the present. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that he's very much feeling anxious because he had a sense that if only he had the opportunity to be a Bravanel figure, um, it would have turned out quite differently. Okay, let's round out this interview and uh, dig into your authorial experience. What in the process, either the process of imagining the story or the process of researching the story, surprised you? What delighted you or dismayed you? 
for me, a lot of the, the book, the research was really done to understand what I can distort, right? Because, uh, I mean, I wasn't around in 1959, 1960, and, and I'm not interested in making a period piece. I was mostly interested in, in writing something that looked like the 50s and 60s and felt and sounded like the 50s and 60s, but really was about today's political arguments. And so what I found surprising, I mean, it, it is maybe a, a, a stupid thing to be surprised by, but maybe by the optimism. I think that I came of age at a time when there wasn't a lot of political optimism in the United States uh, or in Israel. I think that I, you know, I came at a time when there was never a larger rift between the United States and Israel. Uh, people of my generation in the United States or Jews tend to be completely opposite politically of uh, Jews of my generation in Israel who came of age during the second intifada and uh, and so you know we're on opposite sides of a of a seesaw in a way and I think what was surprising was to see the collective optimism of a certain period and to see how it was squandered almost unconsciously almost unawares it's almost you like you woke up one day and all of your storehouses and granaries that were full of optimism are suddenly empty and nothing had been stored up for the future. And that to me was kind of fascinating to, to, to see. The other thing was, was frankly surprising was to find out how much I agreed with Benzion Netanyahu in a, in, in a lot of ways. The, the man was a historian who's also sort of a talented fiction writer, let's say in his own writing of history, in, in my opinion. But truthfully, Unfortunately, and maybe this is because of our lack of, of optimism, history has has in many ways borne him out. Uh, the story of American assimilation um, uh, absolutely follows according to where uh, uh, he laid things out. And not just that, but taking it outside of a Jewish context, you know, he began to talk about, you know, tribalisms and the beginnings of, 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 of Zionism. And one of his kind of lines, essentially, which I, I, I paraphrase in the book, is that and he's talking about Austro-Hungary. He's talking about the Austro-Hungary of his birth. And he's talking about um, once you can't feel like a citizen of an empire, right, but that your identity is given more dignity when you feel like you're a Bulgarian or a Romanian or a Slovenian or a Czech or a Slovak and not necessarily a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then your empire fractures and you will fall. And so what kind of inhered on a national level, let's say, right before World War One and the and, and the fracturing of the Austro-Hungarian Empire now inheres, I think, in an identity level, even in a personal level today, when we can't feel that we can say that we're Americans without embarrassment, we we start breaking out our hyphens or we get our, our primary dignity, let's say, as um, as black, as gay, as as this, as that. And that is when empire fails. This was Netanyahu's critique of, of, of early 20th century Europe and his critique uh, or at least his explanation for the birth of, of, of Zionism or what he would call, you know, Western Zionism. And it surprised me how absolutely applicable it is today. And yet, essentially what Benzion Netanyahu was asking for was a safe space. I mean, Israel is a safe space for Jews with a nuclear program. And so then there was all of this kind of call for a ethno nation state, 
um, which today we, of course, associate with the right wing, but all presented by Benzino Netanyahu in left wing terms, you know, a, a, a place where one could be free to practice one's identity without blah, 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 blah. And so to me, it's, it's, it's watching the left today use old language of the right, watching the right use old language of the left, and the constant cycling of revisions. Uh, and everyone's new definition of revisionism in every generation that was delightful to discover, also disappointing and sort of inexhaustible. And therefore giving us something to ponder what's around the curve. So pondering with you has been a real pleasure. Uh, Joshua Cohen, thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing your insights. I look forward to future conversations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect.